This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, The Hartford, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, on past Ringler Radio shows, we've paid close attention to the BP oil spill and uh, the disaster that that caused. So today we're going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the Plaintiff Steering Committee and give you an update on the proposed settlement that's uh, sitting out there for all of us to look at. Back in March of 2012, BP reached a settlement with the Plaintiff Steering Committee, a proposed class action settlement which BP has valued at about $7.8 billion. The settlement is not yet final, and the court will consider final approval of the settlement at a fairness hearing scheduled for not too long from now, on November 8th, 2012. And joining me today to discuss the proposed settlement and some other issues around the BP spill is my colleague from Ringler, Wayne Wagner. Wayne is uh, headed our New Orleans office since he joined Ringler back in 1984. Wayne has vast experience in the areas of insurance, law, and banking, and the combination of these three have also helped him in the structured settlement business. So, Wayne, welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you, Larry. I'm glad to be here. Great. And our special guest today is attorney Paul Sturbkow from the firm Lewis, Coleman, Sturbkow, and Abramson, also in New Orleans. Paul's practice concentrates on admiralty law, medical malpractice, and civil litigation. And Paul is a member of the Plaintiff Steering Committee, of course, on the BP spill. And uh, I guess that's the reason you're here today, Paul. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you very much. It's good to join you. Well, Paul, let's start out by uh, having you tell us about the Plaintiff Steering Committee. What is its mission, and uh, what's your role on the committee? Uh, the Plaintiff Steering Committee is a group of attorneys chosen uh, by United States District Judge Carl Barbier, who, uh, as you probably know, uh, is handling the BP multi-district litigation. Uh, the Steering Committee's role uh, in this multi-district case, just as in, as in every other multi-district case, is to represent claimants uh, from all around the country who have either filed or will file claims claiming damages, in this case, as a result of the BP oil spill. Uh, the federal uh, procedural rules have evolved over the years in recognition of the fact that it would be impossible for individuals uh, to file lawsuits in separate courts throughout the United States. The court system wouldn't be able to handle it. So the multi-district litigation system was created some time back to consolidate the litigation in one venue before one judge uh, to be handled efficiently mm -hmm. uh, and to do the best for the greatest number. And so the Plaintiff Steering Committee is a committee appointed by the court that essentially acts as the plaintiff attorneys for everyone who has filed or may file a claim uh, to try and do what we can to prosecute those claims to the best of our ability. Now, do you have a special role on that committee, a, yeah, a specific I, I, role? And over time, it has evolved, and I, along uh, with uh, one of the other lawyers on the committee, Robert Cunningham from Mobile, uh, are the lead trial attorneys uh, for the trial 
that was continued, uh, that was supposed to go in February of 2012, and it was continued as a result of the settlement, but has now been reset for, I believe, January 13 of 2013. Terrific. Well, from the perspective of the steering committee, what were some of the important issues that the proposed settlement uh, covered? What are some of those issues? Paul? Right. Well, we've divided the issues into broad categories that we hope and we absolutely believe and expect will cover the largest number given the massive scope of this case and of the damages suffered. Basically, we're looking at business economic losses, mm-hmm. individual economic losses, a separate system for compensation for the seafood industry, compensation to those who were involved in what's been come to uh, be called the Vessels of Opportunity Program. Uh, that was the program put together by BP to get boats out into the Gulf as quickly as possible on the cleanup, uh, private individuals, boat brokers, boat owners, etc. Uh, loss of use and enjoyment for coastal property and wetland wetlands owners. Uh, so that that's intended to compensate both for actual physical damage to your property uh, as a result of oil touching the property or wetlands and inability to use and enjoy your property as a result of the oil spill, whether the oil actually touched your property or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, realized losses on sales of residential property, uh, which means that as opposed to a claim that my property was worth X before and now it's only worth Y, uh, that's a much more complicated area for us to get into and try and structure a settlement because there are so many variables. But the fact is, if you had your, your, your property for sale for a certain value and then had to sell it at a lesser value, mm-hmm. uh, that's a much easier uh, claim and loss, if you will, for us to get our hands around. So that's included. Mm-hmm. And then you have property and vessel damage from oil, separate and apart from coastal and wetlands. And then there's a, there's a wholly separate component to this that deals strictly with health concerns and the need for medical care now into the future. Interesting. So when it comes to uh, the settlement and these various categories, I assume there's some eligibility requirements and various rules, and uh, I guess they can get a little complex. Tell us a little bit about that whole area. That's correct. Um, the first and, and foremost, those eligible are, are businesses and individuals located anywhere in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, the four southeasternmost counties in Texas going away from the uh, Louisiana border, and parts of Florida, specifically the Panhandle and the West Coast, the Gulf Coast of Florida, and the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, any business or individual within this geographic area, and, and I need to stress that, you don't have to be in Grand Isle, Louisiana, or Panama City, Florida. You can be in Birmingham, Alabama. You can be in Jackson, Mississippi. You can be in Shreveport, Louisiana. As long as you're in that geographic area that I described, you potentially have a claim, and those persons, we are urging those to come forward and compile the required documentation so that a claim facility can analyze your claim. Well, you know, when you talk about people in Jackson, Mississippi, or Birmingham, quite quite a distance from the coast itself, I assume a lot of those claims are more business and economic type loss claims. Correct. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about that that whole area. Uh, talk about the initial analysis that needs to take place in terms of the scope of the geography and the type of business that may uh, may have a claim in, in that area. Okay. Uh, well, first, again, almost any type of business has a potential claim, assuming you're located within the geographic areas I previously mentioned. Mm-hmm. Now, within those areas, within Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Panhandle, et cetera, uh, 
we have divided the ge- geography into zones, A through D. And the zone you're in depends on your geographic location. It's strictly a geographic test. Mm-hmm. And generally, if your business is located on or very near the coast, you will be a zone A or zone B claimant. The further away you move from the coast north, uh, you get into um, zone C and zone D. Now, having said that, uh, there are parts of the geography that are cut out. And, an, and the example that ever, I think most people are aware of is the French Quarter in New Orleans is designated as a zone A zone, and a large part of downtown New Orleans is located in zone B. Uh, and zone A, zone B, zone C, zone D are treated differently in terms of what you have to show and your ability uh, to to recover so which zone your business in has a direct impact on how your claim is analyzed. Interesting. Um, there's a list, in addition to what I just said, there is a list of specifically excluded businesses or entities from the settlement agreement. This list in, in general includes certain businesses in the oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. financial institutions such as banks and other types of lenders, insurance agencies, real estate developers, and there are other certain other types of businesses. But having said that, it, it, is, it, is, it is our experience, and I would urge your listeners, don't assume that you're excluded, even if your business falls into one of those excluded categories, uh, because you need to be absolutely sure uh, if you're actually included, because if you do nothing, your legal rights and opportunity for recovery might be permanently negatively affected. Uh, And the key piece of information, if I could distill this down to one piece of information that a business owner should look at in in the initial analysis, is is the business's six-digit NAICS code listed on your 2010 tax return. Because that NAICS code classifies your business activity, and the settlement uses those business classes uh, specifically to exclude entities in the settlement. Well, give, so, give me an example, Paul, of, of the kinds of categories that those code codes would would talk about. Is it one like a, the restaurant business or the or or, or a lodging type business? What, what would what would those codes codes designate? For the, right, for those the, for the codes listener? those codes are actually created or were created by the the federal government, and it's meant in in the long run to be a means by which the federal government can conduct a a business census, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, like they go door to door to find out how many people live in a certain household, median income, and so forth. Right. What they've done with businesses, because they can't go door to door for every business, is they've set up this code system, and it's readily accessible on the internet if you go to the federal government's website. And every business has to designate one of those codes in their federal tax return. So restaurants have one, uh, tourism type businesses, and all of these businesses are specifically included in the settlement. All right. Right. And not only are they included, restaurants and tourism get very, very favorable uh, treatment. But then you have businesses like uh, those who um, are involved in support activities for offshore oil industry, like the people who make equipment that have to be used on rigs, uh, companies that run the boats, that run the crews and supplies back and forth, the pipe makers, the pipe fitters, uh, divers who have to go out and do diving work to maintain platforms and rigs and so forth. Those are the types of NAICS codes that may or may not be specifically excluded because they fall into a broad category of oil and gas industry or businesses that contribute to the oil, the offshore oil and gas industry. Well, obviously, it's a complex 
complex uh, code uh, scenario. It's a it's a complexity that uh, I think the steering committee deals with every day. No question. What about the this concept of causation, the causation test, and the damage determination? I mean, just the formulas that need to take place. How, how are you dealing with that? Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there is some confusion in the public about these tests. Uh, the causation test and the damage determination are two separate and distinct analyses. Uh, and the best way to go about it, the simplest way to go about it, is you think of it as a two-step process. First, you would run the defined causation test to see if your business has a claim. Second, if you pass the causation test, then you do a completely separate damage determination to see how much compensation your business may be entitled to. Now, the causation test, step one, is based solely on monthly revenues. Uh, without getting into, the, the, as you said, the complicated details, because it is very complicated, what you would do is look at periods of three consecutive months of revenues to see if they meet a certain pattern. And at the very least, to do that analysis, uh, a business would need monthly income statements showing gross revenues by month from the years 2009, 2010, and 2011. Now, if a business still has those records from 2007 and 2008, we would strongly recommend you submit those as well because they can be relevant to your analysis and help you pass the causation test. Now, having said that, and I don't mean to overly complicate it, but this is important. No, no, it's important, yeah. Certain businesses are exempt from having to pass this causation test and are presumed to pass causation simply based on geographic location. And if you remember, I went back and talked about the zones, and Zone A are businesses that are closest to the coast, French Quarter, uh, downtown New Orleans. If you're a business in Zone A, or you're defined as a tourism business in Zone A or B, or a seafood business in Zones A through C, you have presumed causation based upon the location of your business and or your business activity. And you don't have to go any further, and you don't have to submit these monthly profit and losses and, and go through that causation test. Gotcha. So it, it, assuming you're not, you don't fall into presumed causation, if your monthly revenues pass the causation test, or if you do have presumed causation, you go to the damage determination. And unlike uh, the causation test where you're basing it solely on monthly revenues, this determination focuses on a business's variable profit margin. Uh, so it's more complicated, it's more detailed. Monthly expenses of the business are also taken into account. So a potential claimant will need the same monthly income statements as previously mentioned, plus they need their tax returns for the corresponding tax years so that monthly profits and variable and fixed costs can also be analyzed to determine your ultimate damages. I hope I haven't confused you. No, you haven't at all. I know. <laughs> I think it's very clear. And uh, obviously, what you're saying is, depending on a business's, and I'll be simplistic, a business's zip code, and then their NAICS code, that kind of is going to tell if they're in that proper zone, if they have that proper designation in terms of what business they're in. And certain in, certain industries and businesses have presumptions of causation. Others have to prove more. Correct. And, and, and I failed to mention... Uh, the, the businesses that are considered tourism, which is very important in this settlement, are laid out in the settlement. You can go directly to the settlement document mm -hmm. because if you are a tourism business, as I said before, even if you're not in Zone A, if you're a tourism business in Zone B, 
you still have that causation presumption. Uh, and if you're defined as a seafood business, you go all the way to, through zone C, and you still have the causation presumption. So it's very important to look at how the settlement defines your particular business in step one in determining whether you get a, a pass on causation or whether you have to prove causation. It sounds also, uh, Paul, like uh, this damage determination is going to keep a lot of accountants busy down in that area. We, the, the accounting industry in, 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 in these states is very thankful to us, from no, what I understand. No, no question. <laughs> well, obviously, in any, in any analysis like that, when things are presented – uh, there's always going to be some people that are disappointed in the result or the turnout uh, sure. as to how you're going to determine what they're going to be able to receive. So what's the appeal process if someone isn't satisfied with what you folks determined for them? Well, the, the first step, if the claimant, the person who filed the claim and is claiming damages, if you're not satisfied, you can ask the claims facility to reconsider your claim based on an alleged uh, failure to calculate properly or the facility's alleged failure to take account into account relevant information that would lead to a different result. If that reconsideration does not come out in your favor, if, if the reconsideration process is requested, it's completed, claim center says, no, we think we did this right, the claimant can then appeal to an independent panel of three appeal specialists. And these specialists are all former judges or current practicing attorneys from around the Gulf Coast who were selected by Judge Barbier. That's very, very important, and mm -hmm. we insisted that in, in that in the settlement. The appeals panel, the person to whom you would ultimately go if necessary, is not, was not chosen and is not controlled in any manner by BP, by the plaintiff steering committee, by the claims facility, or by anyone involved in this matter as a party litigant or a claims examiner. Uh, and what they will do is they will hear the claim, the claimant's argument, they will hear BP's argument, and by the way, BP also has the right to appeal if they think somebody's been awarded too much money, mm -hmm. and that claims panel will render a, a decision. Finally, if the claimant goes through all of this and says, you know, I still don't think this is right, I think I'm entitled to more, the last recourse is to appeal directly to Judge Barbier, who's overseeing the entire litigation. So at the end of the day, what we've done by putting this process together is we have assured a completely transparent and independent review process where nobody can come in and say that either the PSC on behalf of the claimants mm -hmm. or BP or anyone else was unduly influential over those making appeals decisions because first it goes to a panel of independently appointed, appointed people, like I said, retired judges, well-respected lawyers, and if it's still not resolved, it goes to the United States District Judge, who you can rest assured <laughs> will right. decide based on what he thinks is best. Well, obviously, uh, you put a lot of thought, everyone did, into uh, the potential issues that could arise from these kinds of disputes, and uh, I think we can all rest a little bit more comfortably to know that such a, such a system is in place. Well, because the settlement has been structured as a class action, Paul, Right. Plaintiffs can also opt out of that. I mean, there, there's true. an opportunity. What if? What if? Uh, and t tell me if you are aware of uh, what's the what's the reading right now on the opt out scenario. Well, one thing that's happened recently, and and I don't know how much publicity this has gotten. The the first opt out date uh, that was established in the original agreement was October one. Mm -hmm. That has now been extended by Judge Barbier to November one to give people a little more of an opportunity to think this through. Um, there, there are a, there's a certain trigger provision, if you will, like there is in any agreement like this, that if a large enough number of plaintiffs opt out of the settlement, 
uh, then it would have certain material effects on the agreement. However, the, in this case, the trigger provisions are primarily relevant to the seafood compensation component of the program. Outside of the seafood context, opt-outs likely uh, will not have, we don't think, a large impact on the overall settlement, simply because there are so many, as you can, as you can deduce from the way I've described the scope and breadth of this thing, there are so many potential claimants that there would have to be so many organized opt-outs uh, that you know, who, who, nobody will know to November 1st, but it would be virtually impossible to receive a, the, a large enough number of opt-outs, we think, that it would materially affect uh, the settlement. Uh, but one thing I, I want to point out to folks, uh, if a, a claimant or a claimant's counsel is considering opting out, uh, that person or that lawyer needs to think long and hard about the consequences because, and again, this is this is not being said to be overbearing or heavy-handed. This is for information purposes so people understand what they're doing and the consequences of their actions. This go, this settlement is so broad in terms of its scope and its potential payout. You know, well beyond the 7.8 billion. Uh, people need to understand there is no cap on this settlement. BP put a number on this because that's what they think they will ultimately pay. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, as long as claimants keep coming and they have claims approved, BP has to keep paying. There is no cap on this settlement. If you choose to opt out, the problem you're going to face is that because we still have to go to trial on January 13th, we still have parties who have not settled, Halliburton, Transocean, Cameron. We still have a large number of claimants who are not included in this settlement including the, you know, the ones that we specifically uh, we talked about that are excluded, mm-hmm. other types of claimants that just aren't within this class, that if, you opt, if you're in this class and you decide to opt out, it is going to be a long, long, long wait before you get, quote, get your day in court or get BP's attention sufficient to have your claim looked at and potentially settled. Well, no, no question. I think what, what's on anybody's mind that's going to face that decision of opting out or not is, is their, their view of the fairness of the process. And uh, the person that's heading up the, uh, the whole settlement activity, the claim facility, uh, is somebody I think is very well respected at this point down there, as Pat Juno, as I understand. Absolutely. I, you know, and I can't, and, and I, you know, I shouldn't be t- uh, doing this because Pat will probably hear it, and I hate, to, I hate for him to hear me praising him, but I've known Pat for years. And I can't think of a better person, frankly, to have been appointed in this position. Pat is an extremely well-respected lawyer, uh, mediator. Uh, he's got vast experience in these areas. And if Pat, the, the bottom line with Pat Juno is if he tells you something, you can believe it. You can take it to the bank. And he's not here to do anything but try to make this vast settlement system work. Uh, and I can't think of anybody with more character and integrity and ability to get that job done than Pat Juno. So that was a, that was a great, great appointment by Judge Barbier. Well, that's a terrific testimonial, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be very helpful to getting this process moving and, and continuing. I think so, too. Well, Wayne, let's uh, turn to you for a little bit. Uh, as we talk about uh, this business interruption claims that are going to be arising from the spill, uh, a lot of them are significant and are prevalent Not you know throughout Louisiana and, as uh, Paul mentioned, Mississippi, Alabama, the whole Gulf Coast. Uh, and even beyond the coastal areas. So for our audience who might be unfamiliar, talk to us about these business interruption claims and how, how vast the scope of those are. Well, you pretty much uh, answered the question uh, in your question. 
the, the fact of the matter is that these uh, claims are prevalent throughout Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, and Alabama, and a few counties in uh, uh, Texas and, uh, and Florida, whereas uh, the other the other uh, categories of damages that were mentioned in the settlement uh, are pretty much uh, 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 confined to uh, I-10 or below or somewhere a little bit above mm-hmm. I-10 or below. Uh, so this has got the, the, uh, the greatest amount of uh, claimants uh, of all of the categories that he spoke about. Now, are, would you consider the business interruption claims some of the most difficult to really define in terms of their economic impact of, of the spill? It strikes me that uh, having a business decline uh, in an economic time frame that we're in anyway would be would be somewhat difficult to try to pin on a, on a particular event, especially if you're as far removed from the coast as some of these places are. Is that one of the challenges? Uh, yes, it is, but uh, that's one of the challenges that uh, uh, the uh, economic uh, tests have tried to uh, to solve. Because uh, if a person's uh, economic uh, uh, history uh, looks a certain way, he will be deemed to it will have been deemed to have been caused by BP, uh, whether or not in fact it has. But legally, it meets the test. Well, let's talk about how these business interruption claim settlements are treated. Tell us about the taxation of those settlements on the business interruption side. The, uh, these are fully taxable. Uh, if you are a uh, cash basis taxpayer, uh, the year that you receive the cash, uh, the settlement, that is the year that you will be paying your taxes on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because these can be very large settlements, uh, these uh, settlements could be taxed as high as, combining state and federal, uh, as high or a little bit higher than 40%. So, uh, Wayne, once the, the individual gets their, their funds from the settlement facility uh, on the business interruption side and they're taxed uh, fully, that that provides a little bit of a dilemma. Is is there a way that they can, uh, through a structured settlement, for example, is there a way they can avoid getting taxed this year uh, for that substantial amount and instead spread it out? Tell us about that. Uh, yes. Uh, on a lump sum basis, what will happen is they will have to pay taxes on the full, uh, if it's a million dollars, the full million dollars in that year, which would put them in a tax bracket probably greater than 40%. percent mm-hmm. So the uh, the net result of that is that they will receive uh, a net of six hundred thousand dollars to invest for the rest of their their lives. However, they want to invest that. Right. Uh, the uh, alternative would be to put it into a, a structured settlement uh, where they do not receive that large lump sum in any particular uh, year, uh, but they will the uh, structure will provide for a long term payout, which would keep them in lower tax brackets. Uh, for for the uh, duration of the investment term. So in essence, they would be getting 1099s in the years they receive the money, uh, not all at once at the beginning, and and it could be set up any way they want, right? They, they could get it monthly, annually, for whatever period of time they want, and uh, avoid that big tax bite right at the beginning of the of the of the deal. And avoid and avoid the big tax bracket. Period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I I think if anybody has a specific uh, scenario they want to discuss a- around the potential of a settlement they may they may get, they can always contact you, Wayne, and at the end of the, the show, we'll uh, let people know how to do that. Okay, uh, one of the important things we should be talking to our audience about also is uh, 
negotiating if they want a structure to negotiate that structure. Wayne, how does a how does a person out there in a business that's getting this business interruption claim? How do they even think about negotiating for a structured settlement? Who, who, who do they contact? How do they do that? Well, they would uh, contact generally a structured settlement broker, but the actual negotiations of the uh, the settlement would be handled between their attorney and, and the uh, uh, qualified settlement fund, which is uh, headed by Pat Juno. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that fund that fund will be either paying monies out as lump sums of cash, or they could alternatively alternatively be buying an annuity for that individual. Okay. And what they should do is, as they get close to arriving at a number that is acceptable, the uh, the attorney representing the claimant should get in touch with a structured settlement broker to translate that into uh, into benefits, into structured settlement benefits. Right. Uh, because they want to settle on benefits. They don't want to settle on costs. If they if they have a million dollar claim and they're willing to to accept the million dollars, they should have that million dollars uh, translated into uh, benefits and accept the benefits, mm-hmm. not the million dollar cost. Interesting. The reason for that is that you don't want the IRS to think that they settle for the cost million dollars, which would trigger a tax that in that first year. I understand. So those a lot of those rules around how it should be done need to get. Uh, need to get uh, laid out by by that discussion that needs to take place between the lawyers and the structured settlement broker to try to let that individual know what the options are that they have. That's correct. So let's take a quick break right now. This is getting this is a very interesting discussion and it's getting more interesting as we go. Uh, and we back let's be back in a, in a minute or so with more here on Ringler Radio with Wayne and Paul about the BPR oil spill and the settlement that we've been discussing all morning. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. Ringler Radio is celebrating its seventh year right here on Legal Talk Network. Produced by broadcast professionals and hosted by Larry Cohen. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast on LegalTalkNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email. Or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter. LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. 
I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and I'm joined today by my colleague Wayne Wagner from New Orleans and our special guest, Attorney Paul Sturbkow from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana as well. Well, Paul, uh, there's a fairness hearing coming up scheduled for November 8, 2012 to consider the final approval of the settlement. Uh, that's an important date, an important uh, hearing. What, in your view, is going to uh, going to happen? Uh, well, we, we're starting to get a bit of a roadmap uh, from the court on how this is going to be handled. And, and what we think, the way we think it'll happen is uh, BP and the plaintiff steering committee will each give their positions on the settlement, uh, how it was reached, uh, the benefits of the settlement, uh, how it we think uh, and, f- and strongly believe benefits the, the greatest number of folks and does the greatest good uh, that any agreement in a case of this type could. And following those uh, presentations, the court is going to devise a system that will allow objectors who have come forward, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, objectors had to have filed papers with the court. I believe that the cutoff date was September 7th, uh, specifically detailing the reasons that they object to this settlement. Uh, the court will devise a system that it will, will allow objectors to be heard uh, in some uh, form or fashion that will uh, not squelch any voices, but at the same time ensure that, you know, this is not a week-long hearing where people stand up and, and are allowed to just talk and talk and talk mm-hmm. and repeat themselves, because uh, knowing Judge Barbier, that, <laughs> that yeah. positively won't be permitted. And so once the, the hearing will take place, it'll all be on the record, it'll all be in open court. Uh, Judge Barbier will take everyone's comments into consideration. Uh, I'm sure he will review again uh, the nuts and bolts of the settlement, uh, and at some point after November 8, he will issue a ruling where he will lay out his decision on whether or not this settlement is, quote, fair, as that term is used in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, and whether or not it should be approved. And mm-hmm. if Judge Barbier puts his stamp of approval on the settlement, which we obviously hope he will, uh, then, it, then it's, it's, it will go forward as it is now. Uh, and parties who still object uh, will have the right at that point to attempt to take his decision decision to the United States uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. But I want to stress, Larry, it's important. People should be if they if you're in the settlement class and you want to pursue a claim, you need to file your claim now. You know, claims are being processed, they're being looked at, checks are being sent. So you you should not wait for a fairness hearing. The fairness hearing is only a global. Uh, exercise, if you will, to allow people who have specific problems with the settlement to come in and alert the court to those problems. But Mm -hmm. this is an ongoing settlement process. Claims are being accepted, claims are being reviewed, and checks are being paid. So if you have a claim, Mm -hmm. don't wait for any fairness hearing. Get your claim in and get it reviewed and and get a determination. And and I do know, uh, both of you know, that there have been some uh, information sessions going on all through the Gulf area uh, to alert people to this process. How how have those sessions been doing, and are people getting the word, like you say, to to come in and, and make sure they file their claims. Right. We The PSC put together a series uh, of, of town hall meetings, if you will, mm-hmm. after the settlement where we went to various cities in all of the affected states, the geographic location states and along the Gulf Coast, tried to talk to specific, particularly lawyers and accountants so they could spread the word in their individual communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat Juno has also followed us 
and gone and held town hall meetings and is available. My understanding is Pat is available upon request if any group or, or political group or whatever it be uh, wants Pat to come speak. He will come lay this out. And I know for a fact, I know right before our, our Hurricane Isaac, Pat had gone to Tampa and spoken to a big group. I know he's been to the Alabama coast recently to speak to a big group. Uh, so, you know, we're hopeful between these town hall meetings, word of mouth, publications through the court's website on the Internet, mailings to claimants that uh, we're getting the word out as best as we possibly can. Well, I think with that, we'll uh, we'll close this discussion, but it sounds promising, very promising. And I, I can tell you, as uh, all of our listeners would uh, would attest, uh, seeing the BP spill and, and, and seeing the devastation that it caused to the Gulf uh, made us all uh, sit up and notice. And hopefully the people down there that have been so devastated will have uh, the proper compensation through the good works of your committee and, uh, and Judge Barbier as well. Thank you very much, and, and rest assured we're doing everything we can to accomplish that goal. I appreciate that, too. So, uh, listen, Paul, if someone would want to get in touch with you to talk to you about any of this, uh, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me is the, 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 the main number at my law firm in New Orleans is 504-588-1508. Uh, or I can give you my email address. Those are the two best ways to at least, you know, let me know that you want to talk to me because I'm I, I don't spend a lot of time in the office these days, but I do my best to return emails and phone calls as promptly as I can. Uh, and my email address is my last name Sturbco. It's spelled S T E R B C O W at L K S A Law dot com. Sturbco at L K salaw.com. So either by phone or email, uh, your message or your or your, vo- your voicemail will get to me at some point. And rest assured, as soon as I have the time to answer your inquiry or call you back, I absolutely will. Well, that's terrific. Thanks, Paul, very much. And Wayne, if uh, someone wanted to reach you, how would they do that? Uh, they could contact me by phone by uh, area code 866-229-1154. Uh, we're also on the Ringler uh, uh, website, which is www.wranglerassociates.com. Wrangler is spelled out R-I-N-G-L-E-R, and associates is plural. Terrific. Well, uh, obviously, anyone that wants to get in touch with any of the Ringler Associates can reach uh, them on ringlerassociates.com. And if you want to listen to this show uh, or any show that Ringler Radio has uh, had in the past, you can always get them from ringlerassociates.com or from legaltalknetwork.com. Uh, where you can download them and uh, put them on your iPad, your iPod, listen to them at your leisure. So with that, Paul, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Wayne, you too. uh, It's been a pleasure to have you as co-host. Thank you, Larry. And uh, for the rest of you out there, go have a great day. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio, celebrating its seventh year on Legal Talk Network with over a million listeners. Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.